Hi, and welcome to season five of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hi, everybody. It's Bob again, and I've got Influential Leadership, A Leader's Guide to Getting Things Done. I've got Colin Gotry with me today. And, uh, you know, if you're a busy executive, this is a must read for sure. Before we get too much into the book, I was very curious. You got this beautiful design. Uh, was there any influence on that design? Uh, to be honest, Bob, absolutely not. I mean, I'm delighted to be with you today and sort of talking to your readers as well. But the design of the jacket, that's very much down to um, the publishers. And an interesting aspect of a relationship with the publisher is that you really don't have very much influence over titles and, uh, and design. They seem to do it all. Yeah, they, they do tend to uh, wade in a bit. And I think for a lot of writers, when, they're, when they're, they've written their book, they say, ah, it's all done. They send it to a publisher and the guy says, oh, yeah, this is awesome. Uh, now we're going to start working on the book. And you go, what? I thought it was finished. <laughs> but, I, but I have to say, Bob, I mean, it, you know, with the jackets, usually when you first see them, you think, oh, that wasn't how I visualized it. But within a few days, you think you couldn't have done it better yourself. And they really do know their stuff. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it is a nice book. It's got a beautiful matte finish, which I'm, I'm really happy is coming back in style again. But on the inside, too, it's nice. It's broken up into lots of small sections, a lot of bullet points. You can really skim through the book quite quickly and get to relevant points. So my first question to you is, is it a book that you, could, you should read cover to cover, or is it a book where you just jump into a topic that you need an answer to? To be honest, Bob, most of my books have been those that you can dip into for particular needs and when something's going on. And this is the first book that I've done that I would really recommend you dedicating some serious time to reading cover to cover the first time around. And the reason for that is because of the complex nature of influencing complex um, organizational environments mm. um, there's a lot of learning to do before you can really start making serious progress but once you have gone through cover to cover then of course you can dip in and go deeper so a good skim would be my uh, sincere recommendation on this particular book mm. do you think that you know a lot of leaders that are out there ceos c-suite people owners managers mid-management all those type do you think they're stuck in their ways? Do they have to unlearn a bunch of stuff before they can move forward with the knowledge in this book? Or is it something that they can adapt to as they go along? What's quite interesting about that, I mean, I think all of us are stuck in our ways to varying varying degrees. Um, but I think once you've become successful and you are, you know, leading a large operation or a large group of people, um, not only do you have a difficulty changing, but other people expect you to stay the same as well. And so there's another another sort of influence on you staying the same. But what this book is about, it's a very, very practical book. It is about helping the individual leader at whatever level to rethink what it is they're doing, what it is they're saying, and therefore the action that they can take to get things done. So it is not sort of really challenging people in a way that it's going to change their skills or dramatically change their mindset. It's helping them to understand at a far more intimate level what's going on right in front of them. So it's not scary, but it will be very, very challenging for a lot of senior leaders. 
Now, you know, you, you have a, a lot of sections in the book, uh, 14 in all. Um, for the manager that feels that he is way too busy to even skim through the book, um, should he not even bother approaching the book because there's no hope for him or her? Or is there a section that they can just go to and dig in? I think if you dive into it halfway through, that's a, I can totally understand why somebody would want to do that. So going to their area of interest or greatest pain or greatest opportunity right now. When they do do that, what I would expect to happen is an awful lot of other questions would come into their mind that are answered elsewhere in the book. So whilst there are a lot of different sections there, they interweave with each other very, very quickly. So people may be able to get a little bit of progress on it, uh, but what and, and, and I've got the feedback already on this, what people are finding is once they start to dive in, wherever they dive in, they stay in and they have a really good read around the subject that they're interested in and so actually read, spend quite a bit of time on it. Hmm. Yeah, the, you know, I can I can just see here, you know, you've got understanding influencing styles and then the next section is adapting of style. So it really does almost in lockstep go from subject to subject to subject. So I, I like you said before, it looks like the book is designed really once you get that it has value to go really right back to the front and read it from page one and let it guide you through to the ability for you to actually be way more efficient and I would say ruthlessly efficient with your time. I think so, Bob, because really the, the structure of the book as a whole is to help leaders to think about, firstly, what is it you're trying to do here? What is it you want to lead? What, what is your vision? Where are you going? Where are you, where are you wanting to sort of progress? What do you want to get done in the sort of medium to, to longer term? And that can be as complicated or as far reaching as your life's purpose to down to what are you going to do over the next two or three years with your particular division. So it starts off with a collection of articles or, or, or of chapters and content about understanding where you want to be, where you want to go and some of the challenges that you face. And then it moves into how the leadership arena where you wish to be successful operates. So what is power? How does power work? How do, do people make the decisions that they make? Because as a leader, I think you need to understand what is going on in the minds of the people that you're leading or the people that you're connected to around your, your, your leadership work so that you can gain more of an understanding of what you've got to do to be effective. And then the book progresses on to, so given your understanding of your leadership arena, now what are you going to do? So what's the big strategy? What's the big game plan? And that's where, you know, sort of the, the, the middle third of the book is really focused on helping people to make very, very clear decisions and keep it simple because it doesn't need to be complicated. But the simple, obvious staging posts on your progress towards your, your ultimate, ultimate purpose or vision. And then it finishes with and all the other skills that you need to be developing along the way. So things like networking, how to adapt your style, as you've already mentioned, um, and those are really important. But what I've found from, I mean, it's 10 years I've been working solely in the arena of power and influence. And what I find is that most people who get to middle years and middle levels in an organization have probably got enough influencing skill. What's missing is their ability to analyze their environment and make clear, well-focused decisions about their strategy to make things happen. You know, you brought up a 
big point there. Um, influence and strategy. How rampant is it out there there you've got a lot of very influential powerful people that are really don't know what they're doing and they're firing off in one direction then they're firing off another direction and really what they're doing is they're they're de- unorganizing an organization and they're frustrating people and they're wasting a lot of other people's time i think it's endemic in the the whole whole of the um the corporate commercial commercial world and also the not for property and, and, and charity sectors because i think people because of their senior level stakeholders for instance their shareholders they've got an awful lot of pressure on their shoulders to make things happen really really quickly and one of the models that i sort of or introduced right at the very beginning of the book is this whole thing about how to make things happen you've got to be making progress you've got to progressively improve the quality of your purpose and by that I mean the quality of your definition of what it is you as a leader want to progress on and as you do that you become more passionate about what it is you're how you're trying to change the world or the company or the organization that you're serving and I think too few people these days, and this is one of the major stimuluses for, for the book, it have the time to think through the longer term. They're just dealing with the pressures of today, whether they're coming from um, shareholders, staff, unions, media, everybody, every leader person in a leadership position has got a huge amount of pressure and they're struggling to do that. And if they can't do that, if they can't do the day job, how can they become a, a leader and develop and de- deliver leadership behaviours that they know how to do? They know how to do a lot of this stuff, but they haven't found the time to be able to do it. So I think there's a lot of pressure on people at the moment. Do you think it's the inability for a, a lot of leaders just to say no? <laughs> I think so, yes. And I understand that because they've got a job they've got need an income to pay their mortgage and to finance their retirement and things like that and that's one of the pressures that most people tend to be under and in the days of particularly since the the, the, uh, 2008 recession started there's a lot of scared people out there I think there are fewer now but what I hope people will get from influential leadership is a lot more personal strength and personal courage of their convictions to make a stand for what they believe to be the right course based on where where it is they're leading rather than being overly concerned about what other stakeholders around them might be thinking. What I see in business a lot of is people being very guarded about what they believe ought to happen in the organisation. They don't stand out. They don't have a platform. They don't have um, what we would call over here a soapbox that they get up and they'll take on all comers. They think, oh, well, how how might uh, Phil over there think about it? He's the finance director, which they need to do to an extent. But I believe by adopting some of the practical processes that I've put within this book, people will develop greater ability and greater courage to say no. I'm in a leadership position. This is where I believe the organisation needs to go. And this is what I'm going to do to start making it happen. Yeah, okay, now let's take into account other people. But that's where we're going, guys. And I don't see enough of that, particularly at middle, middle-ish levels. 
Well, you, you know, you, you mentioned a, a big word there, fear, and one I think one of the major problems with almost every organization that's out there, it's led with fear, like if you don't hit your targets, if you make a mistake, you're out. Do you think it's the responsibility of the, of the uh, leader of the organization, the C-suite, to be actually saying, hey, we want to see you making mistakes. We don't want me to make stupid mistakes again and again, but you need to understand that you have to make mistakes to move forward with any elicity and speed. I think that's a very good point, but I think it becomes a two-way thing. The, the, the enterprise, for want of a better term, needs to take responsibility for creating the culture and the climate uh, where people can sort of uh, you know, make mistakes, learn from those mistakes and become better leaders going forward. Um, they also need to be defending that culture with the shareholders and the other sort of stakeholders around maybe in a group structure which says, no, we've got to protect this. This isn't for a quick kill right now. We've got to be able to push our time horizon progressively out. But I think it's also beholden upon individual leaders to, to start to learn to develop their ability, their confidence such that they can say, no, this is not the right organization for me. I'm very talented. I know what I'm about. I can make these things happen, but I'm not going to stand for that. That doesn't mean to say I'm going to just walk out the door, but strategically in my career, that this is not the organization that I want to be in long term. So I'm going to gravitate towards other organizations that may have a, a more... Um, I think, futuristic approach to leadership and allowing leadership to have the time to lead, actually. Mm. Well, you know, it's quite interesting. There's a lot of organizations that are out there, especially here in North America, that are in growth mode. And what they're realizing is that they don't have the right leaders in place. They don't have the right upper management managers that can that are senior enough to talk to other senior leaders, especially woman to woman. Do you feel that this is another encumbrance of organizations that uh, if you're running as a leader that you don't have the right people on the bus anymore because you got rid of so many? I think it's a legacy from the past, you know, sort of mistakes of culture and responding to environmental pressures that has forced out this. But what I would say to those organisations, if they are in that position, they don't have to stay in that position. And I think personally they need to, you know, take on board what needs to change within the culture and start to make it happen quick. As soon as the steps begin to happen, the talented people who are already in the organisation will start to notice and will start to, I believe, put more effort in because they can potentially see that the organisation is going to support them in that you know, sort of new way of leading the organisation. But also in this very connected world, I think the word will get out very quickly about those organisations that are starting to take, a, I think, a more long-term view of how they allow the leadership processes, the people who are doing the leading, to actually excel for the organisation. And I think that could happen quite quickly. Mm. Now, you, you know, you use the word quick, quickly there, uh, uh, long term. In real life, the word quick and in the business world, the word quick, totally different animal. Um, so when a, a leader should be looking at moving quickly and, and trying to get something to happen quickly, what are you looking at? 18 months, three years or less? I think it depends on what you want to make happen and when, when you want to do it because things can happen very, very quickly. Com complete enterprises can re-engineer the whole culture very, very quickly. I mean, taking taking the forced 
change of culture when two big companies crash together. There's an awful lot of change going on. But I think what needs to happen is once you've set the vision, and this could be a leadership vision, my purpose in this organization is to radically change the leadership culture. That could be a legitimate purpose for a CEO or a C-suite person to actually aspire to within the structure of influential leadership. If that is the goal, now how can you make it happen within that time frame? And it's not to say it's always going to be possible, but I remember sort of, you know, in my early days as a, as a project and program manager, the deadline that was set was sacrosanct. That was what had to be happened. The means and the ways of doing it required the innovation. And that's where we really put to get the teams together. Now, how can we do this? How can we make this happen? Make sure you've got the right experts on board to make it a safe move. But I think it's about setting that aspiration because I think in this day, I mean, take the, the way companies innovate on their products and how quickly new products come to market. Those are some phenomenally complex uh, changes that are taking place within those organizations. Why not the same with culture? I wanted to ask you, you know, you, you've been doing this a long time. Obviously, you've got more than one book. And for you, when you were putting this particular book together, what was your aha moment, something that crystallized for you? I think for me, to be honest, Bob, I mean, what I like about this book and why I was pleased to be asked to write it was that having spent 10 years researching, writing and working in this domain, you know, not only in the UK, but around the world, including America, what I suppose my aha moment was... And I ask this question a lot in workshops. Can you give me examples of really good leaders in your organization? And I ask that of delegates. And there's, of course, the question, well, what do you mean by leadership, etc.? But generally, it is actually quite hard to find people in leadership positions who are rated by people in their organizations as being really good. And that got me thinking as to, well, why is that? With so much money being invested in leadership development, um, where's the result? Where's the return on investment if people are struggling to find, well, it wasn't even great leaders, just good leaders were, were, were seeming to be quite hard to find? And then I started thinking, well, why is that? And this is where the aha moment came is because people haven't got time. They are paid by results for this quarter, this week, get it done, hit the targets, deliver the reports and things like that. Oh, and go off on the leadership development program. Well, I haven't got time for that. I've got all these things you need me to deliver. Well, well, and there's that, that tension because people don't generally get paid to lead. They don't get rewarded for leadership behaviours apart from a pat on the back, and that's not necessarily going to change their bonus. So individuals, where should they invest their time? Well, I'll get the results today. And that's a shame. And that, I put responsibility for that firmly at the door of the senior leadership within the organisation because they need to find a way to equip people to be able to do that but also support them to, to, to help them find the time that is available. Now, it's quite interesting. I mean, a colleague and I were talking about this a couple of, couple of months ago, and he's a professional coach in big businesses. And usually he gets the complaint that I haven't got time to do this. I haven't got time to do all of this. And within 30 minutes, he's usually saved that executive a day. Wow. 
because when we're in the thick of it, we lose sight of the reason why we're doing a lot of these things. A lot of the things that are on our schedule, in our agenda, we're going to meeting after meeting. We sometimes don't even have control over what meetings get put in our diaries, particularly at a senior level. Where is the challenge back? Why am I there? What do you need from me? Um, and it's just very simple, basic stuff that people are not doing because they're too busy. And so I, I, I like the phrase that I coined a number of years ago, pause to go faster. So if you can pause just a moment, think about what you're doing, why you're doing it, how it fits within your purpose, your longer term leadership vision, then you'll very quickly find ways of making it quicker. Then you get going again. <laughs> Well, it's almost like being in the moment, being uh, – we did this amazing book about anger management in, in the office and, and how to deal with a, a volatile situation. And the best way to deal from it is to be aware of it and step back from it, and that's how you deal with the situation. And this sounds very similar. Like if you're crunched for time, the thing that you always, always think is, I don't have enough time, so you panic, which causes you have even less time because your brain is not thinking efficiently. Absolutely. I mean, one of the interesting things, and it happens in a particular chapter within this book, is when people are starting out defining their leadership purpose and rethinking re, re what they're going to do and their plans and their big vision and things like that, they're full of motivation because they're working on it. But there will come a time when that motivation is really put to the test. If it's put to the test and you're not ready for it, you probably won't do what you need to do to restore your motivation. So one of the things that I say in the book is, before you go too far down this road, stop and think, when my motivation slips, when I get these big challenges to my vision, and people are saying, no, you can't do that, it's a stupid idea, and things like that, how am I going to maintain my motivation to see it through? And this is one of the reasons why passion is so important in this initial model that I present of, you know, uh, making progress, finding a purpose, becoming passionate about it. Because the most successful people are those who have continued going. They've got the tenacity. They keep coming back to it. This is how we need to change this industry. And they're really passionate believers in that future. And they're the ones who, once they get going, start to find it progressively easier to deliver. Mm. It's almost like the 80-20 rule. 80% energy up front, keep pushing, keep pushing, but never stop. Yeah, and where I think some of the leadership development programs that are about, um, they miss a trick really, is they start off with purpose. So as a leader, what's your purpose? What are you trying to trying to do? Um, without actually answering the question, how are you going to find time to do this? And, and this is where I think the, this book is, uh, in particular, is different from most, because it doesn't dodge the obvious question, which is, when am I going to find time to develop my purpose? Because developing a life purpose takes a long time. That's a lot of soul searching. A lot of experience has got to go. You can't do it on a workshop. But what you can do is say, okay, there's the general aim, but before I can work on that, I need to clear a day a week or I need to find, uh, get some other things sorted out. So get your house in order over maybe a three to six months time zone and delegate or hire new people, restructure what's around you to give you the space to actually now, okay, now we can really get working on this purpose. And then the more you work on it, the more excited you get about it, the more passionate you get about it, the more progress you make. So for people that are uh, working in an organization, they're thinking about, okay, I need to save more time. What is the biggest time waste that most people have? 
I think it's probably surrounding how the time that they are spending relates to their purpose. So what is it that they are there to do? I think we all accumulate a huge amount of additional work and activity because we lose focus on what it is we are there to do. So my suggestion to people who are maybe at a a junior to middle level is to reflect back on what is it you are being paid to do? What have you got to deliver this year? What are the main objectives? And how does what you are engaged in on a day-to-day basis contribute to that? and how does it pull you against what you're ultimately there to do. By doing that, I think you are starting to prepare for a very tough conversation with the people that are putting all these extra things at your, at your um, or requesting you to do them, where you can say, well, look, fundamentally, my job here is to do this. Is that right? Okay, well, I'm doing all of these things and I need to find a way of freeing up that time so that I can dedicate it to what you really want me to do. So in a way, in, and in the context of the Influential Leadership book, I would encourage leaders to think about what have they got to influence in the short term to be able to gain some sense of control about how they are investing their time so that they can move it more and more towards the purpose. They're is a little bit of a, um, a challenge to that in terms of is it your purpose or your organization's purpose because sometimes people are applying this to their career and it would be unreasonable to expect a boss to say hey no you go and spend all of your time developing your career when they've got lots of work that they need to get done so there's got to be a compromise between actually making things happen for the current boss while also starting to think about the longer term future and some bosses will be a little bit apprehensive about that for sure you know it it goes back again and again to having a plan having a vision and working towards it and and people that really don't have a plan are basically treading water and not being overly efficient because they don't even know if they're going in the right direction i'd be stronger than that bob i think they're wasting their time (laughs) no seriously because you know you're just participating in this thing called work rather than actually becoming a leader if you can't lead yourself and say no this is where I want to go this is what I want to do and so that takes time to develop but the first step is starting to realize that you haven't got that focus you know you you said something that was incredibly powerful being a leader even if you're not in that type of position. And I think in an organization, if you're a smart manager, you're looking for people underneath you that are leader-like because you want to move up the ladder. And the only way you're going to be able to move up is by putting something in place uh, that can do what you're doing in a good way that you're not going to have to micromanage. Absolutely. I don't know what the statistics on this are, but from my coaching experience over the last, I suppose I've been coaching for nearly 20 years, the number of very talented people who talk to me about, um, and this is a very high number, who talk to me about, I want to make the next step, but my company is saying, there's no obvious successor for me. And so a real key part is if you've got the vision and the ambition to move up the hierarchical levels, how are you bringing people along beneath you to be able to take over the reins so that you can move up? Because that's one of the dilemmas for organizations and senior level bosses if they've got somebody in a leadership position at a particular level who is really performing well, they've got to take a risk to allow that person to go somewhere else. 
And so if you can work with your team, with your people, with your potential leaders or your junior leaders to motivate them to start to take leadership behavior seriously for themselves, to start to step up and learn to take responsibility, because I think there's an attitude shift that's got to happen in people during their career to flip over into the attitude of a leader. People have got to be ready for that. People have got to do that. And it's a leader's job, I believe, to actually encourage that in other people. Well, I think, too, if you have an organization that's full of leaders from the guy that drives the truck, he thinks he's a leader all the way up to the CEO, you're going to have people solving problems as they happen. And that only happens in an organization that says you are empowered to make decisions to a point. I just don't go overboard. And I just find it's very rare in an organization to have that. It is. And yet... This has been known for many, many years, for a long, long time. Because uh, when I was uh, doing my business degree, my master's, one of the things that I did was look at um, complexity theory. And there's a lot beyond just the lean theory that everybody's talking at the moment. And one of the most fascinating things to come out of that for me was the whole subject of cybernetics, which is the study of how organisms survive and what systems they have in place to be able to survive in chaotic environments or rapidly changing environments and the study of cybernetics from a a systems thinking uh, perspective is looking at what do organisms do that organizations could do and one of the things is about devolving decision making in the short tactical terms to the boundary spanning roles those roles that are the delivery drivers the customer service service people and things like that. And companies have been doing that for 10, 15, 20, 30 years in a, major, in, in a minor way, but they need to be taking this seriously because the leader at the top cannot be in command of all of the information necessary to make all of the decisions. It is just physically and mentally impossible to do. Therefore, the, the days when the boss knows all the answers are long gone. Mm. Do you think it's an issue of trust that if you have a leader that is fundamentally not a trusting person, the whole organization isn't a trusting organization because people are on edge. They think, ah, I'm not sure. Do I trust this guy to do or not? I'm going to get in trouble. It goes all the way back to the, the fear of failure again. But really, trust is a huge, huge thing. If you're going to be a great manager that manages your time properly, you have to trust in things. It is absolutely right, which is why it is a, is a chapter dedicated to that in the book, uh, how to establish and build trust. Um, and I think there are a lot of things that happen which are dragging or pulling away from the feeling of being trusted. Um, and one of the things that is rampant at the moment are key performance indicators and measures and things like that. And organizations have put these things in place across the whole of their organization to try and monitor everything that's going on um, for, for very good reasons so that they can try to understand what needs to happen to be able to move it forward and get early warning signals that things are right. But if you are being monitored on on every activity that you do, you are not going to feel trusted. And I think then it starts to become uh, the thin end of a wedge because, well, if you're not trusting me, then maybe I'm no good or maybe you don't believe that I should be here. And so it starts to spiral then. Um, and I remember one um, one organization that I worked with, which for obvious reasons will remain nameless, but their um, senior level managers, it was in a sort of retail stroke logistics firm, um, 
they had 145 key performance indicators. Ah, oh, that's ridiculous. How, how do you how do you possibly do that? And when I was a compliance officer, one of the things that I wanted to make sure people knew is what they absolutely had to do, otherwise they were going to get into really serious trouble so that they could focus on those and then work, hopefully get the rest in due course because I didn't want people losing sight of the essential. And it sort of comes back to sort of uh, George Miller, one of the 20th century great psychologists with short-term memory, that you know, Miller's law of seven plus or minus two I think is really relevant because people, he found that people can only store seven pieces of information in their short-term memory, plus or minus two. Um, and the point there, and, I, I, and again, it's a simple idea that I always bring to everything that I'm doing, that's enough objectives, Maybe subdivide them later, but if you've got seven, they'll probably remember to work on those. If a CEO is you know, reorganizing his life to give himself more time, how much of that time should be personal time? That's a very interesting question uh, because I think it's a very personal decision. And that may sound like a bit of a, a glib answer, but different people require different things within their lives. But I do think they need to take into account their personal stakeholders, so the people, their nearest and dearest and their families and what their expectations are. Because this is one of the one of the challenges, because if you've developed as a leader your life's purpose, that you want to change a particular industry, you want to change the way a particular field works or an industry works, that becomes part of your life, not necessarily your career. So that then becomes very personal. And so people who are really driven by their innermost values and they want to create change, particularly societal change, um, where is the dividing line between personal and professional? It's a very difficult thing to actually sort of prescribe. I don't think you can prescribe it. But what I do think, there needs to be some sort of balance so that you are pursuing, you know, sort of your personal relationships as well as your professional-ish interests. Well, you know, you brought up a very good point that if you're lucky enough to have a job you're super impassioned about, a lot of things that can happen is you think you're being very, very efficient, but really what you're doing is because you're so impassioned. You're spending 24 hours a day literally thinking and working on a singular project or a singular goal and everything else, your family, your relationships, um, your health is compromised. And in the long run, that's a very, very poor strategy. It is. And I remember one uh, woman I was coaching uh, was offered um, a, a new position. She was to be sort of uh, an international project manager around Europe. And she'd seen this happen a number of times before where she this company had sort of put a lot of people in those positions. And then suddenly they were out of the country four out of five days. And during one of our coaching sessions, what I encouraged her to do is to lay down some parameters in which she would be prepared to operate and accept that position. And so she went back rather than just saying, yes, I will do it if we can agree these parameters. Mm. And so one of those parameters was she would only ever be out of the country two days in any one week. And they wanted her to do it. They wanted her to do this job. And so they basically she negotiated on those parameters. It wasn't so much about pay. It was more about how I can live this interesting and good life. And do you know what? Three years after she took that position, she said, Colin, that was the coaching session. That was the piece of work that saved me. 
You know, it's it's that's such an important part of understanding. It's not saying yes; it's saying yes in a strategic way. Yes, and and you've got to be able to pause long enough to think about how to do that because everybody's excited when they're offered a new opportunity to go and do this. You've got to almost like transport yourself into the future about how it could actually be in practice and then put in place steps to, you know, minimise some of the problems. I mean, I remember another chap who, um, it was very interesting, he got um, asked to lead a particular project. It was a very big project and it had had a lot of problems and the outgoing project leader had really made a made quite a hash of it and again during a coaching session he said Colin I'm really excited about this I really want to do it the project plans are brilliant they're great that but they're big and what am I missing here and just through some very simple basic questions some of the questions that you will find in influential leadership um, took him through the process saying so what do I need to be able to influence this project through what power do I need to be able to make this happen? And what he did then was realise that whilst he was being given the position of leader of this project, they weren't also giving him the necessary authority to make it happen. So again, he went back and said, very excited about it. I think I can do it. I think it, well, this is what I need in order to be able to make it happen. Hmm. And again, as you're saying, it's thinking, thinking strategically about these things. Thinking objectively and taking some of the emotional reaction out of it so you can look at it dispassionately. What do you need? Mm. Well, you know, you have a whole section here on the ethics as well, and that kind of touches on that as well, is the, the ethical dilemma a lot of times people are put in. Mm. And, and that is of growing um, importance and um, concern, I think, for many people. Um, because I think the days of, and the legislation is sort of moving in this direction of being able to sort of do whatever you need to do to get the result are, are disappearing. Um, but And this is one of the things that I found absolutely fascinating when I was writing the book and researching for this particular aspect. What is ethics? What is right and what is wrong? And the legislators have a view. Different companies have a view. Individuals have a view. But it is so complex because of the cultural variety of people that most executives have to work with, you know, from the Far East to Europe to America, North America and South America. And each one of these, there is a slightly different version of what's right and wrong. And for a global company or somebody operating from a, in a global executive position, They've got to find a way of navigating all of these. And it's hard. And I don't think there is a right answer because it is a matter of what the population that is observing the behavior considers, considers to be right or wrong. Yeah, you know, it, it goes back to the trust thing again is you have to trust your overseas managers to guide you and say, look, this is the way it's done here. You're just going to have to live with it. And and as a leader, you're going to say, well, okay, but that's a little on the unethical side. So, well, actually, they've been doing it for 3,000 years, so it's not considered unethical. Yeah, and I think, and I think but I, Bob, I want to jump in there because I think what people need to do is they need to, and this chapter particularly goes through the process of starting to evolve that, is come up with a personal standard where they will say, no, I'm not doing that, I'm resigning, or whether, okay, that's not really fitting with my standards of behaviour, my code of conduct or whatever you get, but I can see why I need to do it, so I'll do it. 
And so making these decisions consciously so that when you start to breach your own personal code of ethics, you do it objectively with good reason and potentially with mitigating or contingent actions to protect yourself. Well, yeah, it's one of the problems a lot of organizations have with the expat uh, divisions is a term called going native. And, and you, you tend to have an expat in for three years and then you pull them before they get too entrenched and basically go native and say, you know what, I like it here. I don't want to leave. You have to have a goal. But how in concrete does this goal have to be? Does it have to be relatively flexible? I think there inevitably will need to be some flexibility. However, it depends on the scale of the goal, because if you are because the the processes are very um, straightforward. It's the content that you put into the processes in influential leadership that make all the difference. So you can actually chart your way through Mahatma Gandhi, Winston Churchill, all of the great leaders of history. Those sort of processes were there in some way shape or form and the reason why I say that is because if you start small with a purpose that you want to achieve within the next year or two and then you achieve that the next goal the next purpose can be bigger so that ultimately you can have something that is so revolutionary that you know it is going to change the world and the way we look at the world or the way we interact in the world and it's up to you to make that personal decision i am going to go for that come what may no matter what i am going to achieve that and hopefully you will but it depends on i suppose you almost your level of maturity in developing evolving and delivering results one last question if you're in an organization how can you tell if you have uh, the people above you, your manager and your CEO, if they are influential leaders. I mean, I mean that sounds too simple, but I think if you're in an organization, you can't see the forest for the trees. It's a very difficult thing, but a lot of it will come down to the evidence of what is happening around the key things that you need to make happen. Um, a lot of what I see happening is people delegate influence upwards to their bosses to represent them on steering committees or executive committees represent their interests um, and therefore they're waiting for it to come back and when it doesn't they seem to be surprised what I think needs to happen is for individuals to become more connected with the work of the influencer so what have we got to influence here and to having a conversation with the boss and basically working in partnership with your boss, with your more senior leader to work out what needs to happen and who is going to do what. So actually sort of engaging, if you take on board the notion that most senior level roles, a large proportion of the work involved is about influence, why is it not discussed more often and more openly? Okay, what have we got to influence here to make it make it happen? And I think to make that dialogue more um, obvious, I think, is a really good starting point. And some of the processes that, or many of the processes within the workbook, are really good for teams as well. So I think it's the level at which your leader is engaging with you in this whole subject of influence will say an awful lot about whether they're influential or not. I wrote a blog a little while ago, the telltale signs of an influencer at work. And there were five things that you would expect to see in somebody who is really good at influencing. And number one is they know what they're intending to influence. Ah. Number two is they've got a strategy for it. 
Number three is they know the runners and riders around that particular goal, that particular thing that they need to influence. And so they've, they've thought it through. Mm. And I, I give this to, because I do a lot of workshops with, with organizations around the world, and I usually give that blog post to the managers of the people in my workshop so that three months down the line, they can ask the people who came on the workshop those five questions mm. and actually start to embed influence as a part of the way they do business. For people that want to find out more, read the book and want to get more information, where should they go? learn to influence.com that's that's where all of my writing goes there's there's an awful lot there i think it, it contains something like about quarter of a million words of content and it's all about the practical use of power and influence within organizations so there's an all you can spend a long time reading around if you need it but also searching for particular things that you're you need to move on awesome we've been listening to colin talk about his book influential leadership A Leader's Guide to Getting Things Done. Thanks for being on the show, Colin. My pleasure. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show. And do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week. 